Beautiful song, beautiful message. Um, well, again, welcome. Glad that you're here. A um, couple of, I was going to get ready to give some announcements. <laughs> uh, I was on the road a lot this week, so uh, that, that explains it. Um, everybody good? All right, you're just waiting for me to get going. All right, here we go. <clears throat> All right, so uh, we're, we're, fin- we're in a series uh, called Encountering Jesus. And uh, we're meeting people that met Jesus along the way. Today we're going to meet some religious leaders uh, that encountered Jesus, that met him uh, toward the end of his earthly ministry. And so our passage today comes from Luke chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there to Luke chapter 20. And in Luke chapter 20, I want to give you just a little bit of background here. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Um, Jesus uh, scholars think that this particular incident happened on Tuesday. I'm not sure how they arrived at Tuesday, but that's what I read. I believe that uh, this happened on Tuesday. And so uh, this is the last week of his life on Sunday, just before Jesus had rode in on a donkey. Um, he had been hailed as the, the Messiah. Uh, people were singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they were believing that Jesus is this great deliverer that's going to come and deliver Israel from the bondage of the Romans and going to run them out of Israel and all this sort of thing. And so all that's been happening. But these religious leaders want to question Jesus and want to find out whether or not he really is this person. And you can imagine that they're pretty skeptical uh, at the start as to whether or not Jesus really is this Messiah. And so it's Tuesday, and we're about to read one of several public questionings that happen uh, with Jesus. So if you have your Bible, let's um, stand and read together Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Let's begin there at verse 1. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You may be seated. All right, let's kind of just walk through these verses, uh, one verse here at a time. We'll start at verse 1. And verse 1 begins, one day Jesus was teaching at the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. So Jesus is there in the temple. This is the last week of his life, the last week of his public ministry. And so Jesus is going to be on the cross on Friday. This is Tuesday, probably late morning or early afternoon. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, it says, come out to see him. Now, who are the Jewish Sanhedrin? Well, the Jewish Sanhedrin, it says right there in the passage, are the chief priests. These are the priests of the priests. These are the people who were uh, selected by the rabbis, selected by the priests through a process to become the chief amongst all of the rabbis. This is the um, elders, that is people who represent the different tribes of Israel, and they come and they form part of the Sanhedrin as well. So these are elected members there. And so it says also, these are the outstanding teachers of the law. So these are people who are great minds of Israel, the scholars, the theologians of Israel. And so what we have here come together, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the chief priests are basically the ruling class of the, uh, of the Jewish people. 
the ruling council. Today, we might think of them in terms of religious ruling councils. We might think of them as the, cardinal, or, or as the uh, council of cardinals in the Catholic Church. Those guys that walk around with the red garb and they have the little red beanie hats. And whenever they all get together, they select the next pope or they talk about church discipline or they talk about different decisions that are happening in the church. And so they have kind of the, they're the ruling council over what happens in the church. And so that's this group that comes together. And so they come to visit Jesus in the temple and they have a question for him. Look at verse 2. It says, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, remember, this group in Israel are the ones that license rabbis to become rabbis. And so if rabbis are out there teaching something that this group doesn't like, well, they're going to pull that guy in. They're going to rein that guy in and say, hey, look, this is not something that we said that you could talk about. This is not something that we said that you could do. And Jesus, over the course of the past years, has been going around the countryside healing people. He's been going around the countryside telling people that their sins are forgiven. He's been riding into town on a donkey just a couple of days before, which, as everybody knows, that's the sign that the Messiah is coming into Jerusalem to deliver God's people. They, he says that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then he just showed up in the temple a few days ago, or maybe earlier that day. I'm not sure how, when the, all this transpired, Monday, maybe Tuesday morning. And he shows up in the temple and he runs the money changers out of the temple. And so these guys had given the money changers the authority to be in there selling uh, tokens so people could get their lamb to sacrifice at Passover. And so Jesus comes in and runs all those people out. And so they're asking themselves, basically, Jesus, who do you think you are? Really, that's their question, right? By what authority do you, do you have to be doing all these things? And so the question that is motivating these guys, the reason why they're there questioning, is not because they're sincere seekers of Christ. It's not because they want to give their lives to Jesus. It's not because they want to come to him and make him their personal Lord and Savior. It's because they don't agree with the things that Jesus is saying and doing, his miracles, his teaching, his telling people that they can have their sins forgiven. And so they're coming to, um, to, to see if they can um, edge Jesus out. And you say, well, Gordon, how do you know that these guys aren't sincere seekers? I mean, what evidence do you have that he is indeed not sincere seekers? Well, if you flip over one page to Luke chapter 19 and verse 47, it says, Every day he was teaching at the temple. This is Jesus. He's teaching at the temple. It says, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people. That's these guys. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, or the leaders among the people. That's these same guys. And look at what it was that they were trying to do. They were out trying to kill him. They're not interested in coming to Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior to surrender their lives over to him. These guys are coming to try and find some reason to try and edge Jesus out, to rub him out. And so you see the real motives of the rabbis there was in some way to trap or to ensnare Jesus so they could kill him. Um, and so think about it. If Jesus stands there and says to them, hey, look, the authority by which I do this is from God, They'll jump up and say, well, hey, Jesus is blasphemy. Uh, he shouldn't say that he's doing these things, that God has sent him here to do these things. He shouldn't be saying that. And so they would then try Jesus, maybe take him outside and stone him to death for blasphemy. If he would have stood there and said, my authority is not from God, then they would have said to the people, hey, look, this guy's just a false prophet. He's just out here saying stuff. Nobody gave him any of this stuff to talk about. Clearly, he's out of step with what we think. And so Jesus, uh, therefore, you know, everybody wouldn't want to listen to him. They could drive him out of the temple. If he says, I have political authority, I got all these people that just welcome me into the city. I got all these people that are, I've healed. I got all these people that are interested in what I have to say, that have been listening to my teachings. I've got all this political uh, capital, if you would. Um, if he says that I've got that, then they were prepared to go down to the Romans and say, hey, there's this guy, he's down at the temple. He's saying that he's going to take over Israel, that he's going to run you Romans out of here, that he's the authority, that he's the king over this nation. And so immediately the Romans would have come down, they would have seized Jesus, and then off to the cross he probably would have gone. 
And so no matter what Jesus says, no matter what response he gives, whether yes, no, or maybe to the question, what authority do you have to do the things you're doing, to say the things that you're saying, they know that they've got Jesus in a trap. Remember, this is the brightest minds that uh, Israel has to offer. And so they've got Jesus in this trap. So Jesus knows that they've got a trap set for him. And that's why he answered them the way that he did. Look at verse 3. He said, hang on just a minute, guys. I've got a question for you. Y'all are walking out here asking me questions, peppering me with all these questions. How about a question for you? And here's his question. You tell me, verse 4, John's baptism, John the Baptist, was it from God? Um, and so he says, basically, you want to know where my authority is coming from? Then you tell me where John the Baptist got the authority to do the things that he did. And when you tell me where John the Baptist got his authority, you answer my question, then I'll tell you where I get the authority to do the things that I'm doing and to say the things I'm saying. Now flip ahead just a couple of pages to John chapter 1, and we'll see what Jesus is talking about here. John chapter 1 and verse 24. It says, Now some of the rabbis who had been sent questioned John. This is John the Baptist out in the River Jordan. He's been baptizing people there for six months. Uh, up to the time of Jesus' public ministry, and it says, Why do you baptize people if you are not the Messiah? You are not Elijah. You are not the prophet, John. What authority do you have to come out here and do the things that you're doing? Verse 25, John said, I baptize with just plain water, but I'm here preceding one who is among you, whom, uh, who you don't know yet, but he is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, John's talking about Jesus here, talking about the Messiah. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, there he is. He's walking out right now in front of us all, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 30, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to get down and untie his sandals. Verse 32, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove would descend and remain on Jesus. Verse 33, two more verses here. I wouldn't have known who Jesus was except that, he says, the one who sent me, God, said to me. God said to me, he says, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and then the verse that kind of captures everything and then sends us back to Jesus in Luke chapter 20. Here it is, John chapter 1 and verse 34. Watch now. And John says, And I have seen and I testify that this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. And so going back to what Jesus asked the guys, Luke chapter 20, he says, Hey, look, you tell me, by what authority did John walk around teaching? Where'd he get the stuff that he said? <clears throat> that he said? Did he get it from himself? Did he get it from a dream? Or did it come from heaven? Did he get it from God? And so Jesus' authority is being questioned. He fires back that question at these guys. Well, this really puts the rabbis, the doctors of the law, the political leaders in a pickle because they start to think to themselves, hang on here, we got to think about this. Verse 5, it says, they discussed it among themselves. Jesus' question, how to answer it, and said, if we say that John's ministry was from heaven, that is from God, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe John's testimony? Why didn't you believe what he said, that I'm the son of God? Verse 6, but if we say that John's ministry was from men, that he didn't uh, have any divine authority, well, all the people are going to stone us, all the people are going to hate us, because they were persuaded that John was a prophet. 
So do you understand what these guys are saying here? They said, we only have two options. Jesus has given us a question, and there's only two answers we could possibly give. One is, John, his authority was from God. And so therefore, when John said that Jesus is the Son of God, well, then we are agreeing that Jesus really is who he claims to be. And so we can't answer with that, right? That would just have, we'd be caught with our pants down, right? And then the second option was that if we say that John wasn't from God and that he didn't get to teach the things that he taught from God, then that means the people who really like John are going to not like us because we're saying everything that John just taught is bogus and they'll have a riot on our hands and they'll come after us. And so not feeling like they can answer with either question what we see here next is the ultimate cop-out, the ultimate wimp-out, if you would, of all time. Look at this. Uh, it's incredible. Look at this. Back, come, they come back to Jesus, verse 7, after their little uh, get-together over here, thinking about it. They say, verse 7, uh, John's baptism, John's ministry. Well, we don't know. Right. Option number one, can't go there. Option number two, can't go there, so we don't know. We, don't, we can't go one or the other. We'll just say, oh, we just don't know. And we can neither confirm nor deny, Jesus, uh, what the answer to your question. And so Jesus says to them, verse 8, well, then I, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing the things that I'm doing. Um, if you won't tell me where John got his ministry from, therefore confirming. You know, in other words, stand up, guys. Right? Tell what you think. And they didn't want to do that. They wouldn't say the truth. They wouldn't say what they really thought. And so Jesus uh, just says, have a nice day. All right, well, that's the end of our passage for today. And it brings us to our most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate Jesus got in this little uh, encounter with these religious leaders, and he seemed to have won the day. But what difference does that make to you and to me? Well, years ago, I saw a movie called Braveheart. Some of you maybe have seen that movie. It's about uh, a guy in Scotland, interestingly enough. I had that planned for today. Um, and uh, William Wallace, and he was a freedom fighter uh, trying to liberate the people of Scotland from England and from the tyranny of King... Can you tell us? He didn't know either. So Henry, maybe a Henry, probably was a Henry. Um, but anyhow, so uh, liberate them from the, from the tyranny of Britain uh, to, come, to become their own people. And uh, there's several battles, and things are going really well for the Scottish people and the Scottish Liberation Army. And uh, there's kind of this one final battle where it's going to tip the scales in one, one direction or the other. And uh, the night before the big battle, uh, William Wallace, the great hero, um, finds uh, or, or connects with one of the Scottish leaders, a guy by the name of uh, Sir Edmund uh, Sir Bruce, I can't remember, maybe it was Edmund, I'm not sure, but Sir Bruce. And uh, he connects with Sir Bruce and he tells him, hey, look, you're in charge of the cavalry. And we're going to go in with me and my soldiers and we're going to fight this battle. And there's going to come a point where I'm going to wave a flag. And when I wave that flag, I want for you and your soldiers to flank the British army. And we'll just decimate them at that point. And we will win the day where the Scottish people will be liberated forever from English tyranny. And uh, what ends up happening is Sir Bruce uh, thinks on what William Wallace, and he agreed that Sir Bruce and his cavalry were going to do. And when the time comes uh, and the flag is waved, Sir Bruce pulls the reins of his horse, turns away from the battlefield, and marches his cavalry off of the battlefield. 
leaving Sir William Wallace and the Liberation Army to be decimated by the English. Um, perhaps you know people who just blow wherever the wind is going. Because Sir Bruce was motivated by political gain. He saw an opportunity to connect with the English and gain more lands for himself and for his family clan. And so instead of liberating the people of Scotland and participating in that, he chose to uh, deepen his own pockets. And so for some of us, maybe we know people who blow wherever the wind is going, people like Sir Bruce, who cannot be counted on when the odds are stacked against us. People in your office, people in your neighborhood, perhaps people in your own family. And that's the way these rabbis were. They just wanted to straddle the fence. They just wanted to maintain the status quo. Here's the Savior of the world who has been performing hundreds, thousands of miracles over the last, I mean, there's only like, what, 31 days of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels over his three-year public ministry and all the miracles that we have. That's why I believe it's Mark says at the end of his Gospel, um, if all of the books in the world were to try and contain all the things that Jesus did over the course of his public ministry, there wouldn't be enough room, enough space to contain it all. And so they see all that, and that's in front of them. And the mir- they've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. And yet, when the opportunity sets right there before them, I mean, the Savior has ridden into town on a donkey. And they could get on board with that and see the nation of Israel liberated by the Romans as they anticipated all this was going to happen. Um, they straddled the fence instead. They looked out for what was best for them. And Jesus, friends, was not happy with these guys. You say, well, what did Jesus want for them to do? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus wanted for them to do. He wanted for them to stop straddling the fence. He wanted for them to embrace him. He wanted for them to turn to him for the forgiveness of their sins. He wanted them to enter into a personal relationship so that they could have heaven secured uh, for their future. And perhaps, though, here this morning, You've never trusted in Christ in a real and personal way like those rabbis, like those religious leaders were presented with. And if that's the case, you want to know, what does God want me to do with my life? Well, I'll tell you what he wants for you to do. He wants for you to accept him, just like Jesus wanted those religious leaders to do. He wants for you to enter into a personal relationship with him. He wants for you to turn to him to have your sins forgiven. That's what God wants from you, and that, that's what God wants for you. But these rabbis, they were not willing to do that. Or at least Jesus wanted them to stand up like men and say what they really thought. To say what they really thought. To say that John the Baptist was not from God. Because that's really what they thought. To say that Jesus was not from God and that his authority and that his, his healing and all this stuff was rather just an, uh, a miracle of Lucifer. It was a miracle of Satan, that he was sent by Satan rather than sent by God himself. And so Jesus was like, you know, Take the heat, whatever the heat brings, right? Because you stood up and you said what you really think. That's what Jesus wanted them to do. At least, if you don't agree with me, at least say it, that you don't agree with me. He couldn't even get them to do that. Um, I want you to turn over in your Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. And here Jesus is talking to professing Christians. So if you're a professing Christian, if you're someone who claims the name of Christ, and you turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins, then this is something written for you and I. Um, it says, Roman, Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 15. So Jesus says to the professing Christians, he says, I know your deeds, Jesus said, 
that you're neither hot nor cold. Now, Jesus doesn't have a problem with being hot or being cold. He's good with, you know, your, 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 your cold water is refreshing, hot water is therapeutic. Jesus is okay with them being hot or cold. But he says, verse 16, you're neither of these because you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold because they're straddling the fence. These professing Christians are straddling the fence. They claim Jesus' name, but they don't live like it. They claim his name privately because they want the assurance of salvation. They want heaven to be their ultimate landing, uh, if you would. But they don't claim Jesus publicly where you know that you'll have to live differently. Because, Because they're right in the middle, because they are lukewarm, Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Wow. It's kind of rough, right? It's kind of rough. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying this to the religious leaders. He's saying this to the professing Christians. He's saying, look, be hot or be cold. Don't just sit in the middle somewhere and just move along through life. Jesus said, I find straddling the fence so distasteful that I want to spew it out of my mouth. You say, Gordon, that's pretty strong language. It is. You see, what Jesus is trying to tell us is that this method, this approach to living the Christian life, it's something that is totally distasteful to him. Trying to have one foot in our old life, gratifying our old fleshly desires, while at the same time playing the, the part on Sunday morning, Jesus says, that's disgusting to me, distasteful to me, makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, the question, what does God want from us? God wants for us to stop straddling the fence and for us to come out clearly and unapologetically for Jesus Christ, to stop living with one foot in the church and with one foot in the world and to act like that's acceptable to the Lord Jesus. To say, God, you know what? God, he wants for us, to say, for us to be at the point where we're in our life where we say, God, you know what? You can count on me. Bullets start flying, I'll not duck. I'll take them for you. Uh, if I need to speak up, if I need to say what needs to be said, God, you can count on me, I'll say it. I'll not blow with the winds of public opinion. I'll, what I say in private is who I'm going to be in public. Friends, that's what God wants. You know, I ran across this statement, it's a short statement written by a pastor in Zimbabwe. Um, and uh, here's what he writes. He says, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living. Sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, walking, worldly talking, cheap living, and dwarfed gold. He writes, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be topsed praised, regarded, or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean on his promise. I walk 
by his grace. I am uplifted by prayer, and I labor by his power. Now, it wouldn't surprise you that that young Zimbabwe pastor was martyred for his faith. Friends, you take a stance like that, and you live your life by that kind of a creed, hot or cold, not in the middle. Persecution will come. I'm not saying that it's going to come in the form of being martyred. But nevertheless, that's what happened to this guy when he stood for Christ. And so I think that statement sums up what God wants. So the question is, if this is what God wants, and it is, then what is holding us back from committing ourselves to this degree, to the Lord Jesus? And uh, I'd like to give you a couple of hang-ups, just three hang-ups, and then I'll be done this morning. Three hang-ups that hold us back from this kind of a commitment. Three hang-ups that cause us to, if we get hung up on these things, we end up living like the religious leaders, the rabbis of Jesus' day. All right, here's the first one, and that is our creature comforts. Creature comforts. You know, we say to God, God, okay, I hear what you're saying. God, I see how I'm supposed to live, but what's it going to cost me? We always precede our obedience with, well, what's it going to cost me? What, 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 how's my life going to be affected? What's it going to, how my, how's my life got to change? And what that really means is that we're more concerned about earthly gain than we are about heavenly reward. We're more concerned about earthly gain than we are about heavenly reward. And, get this, we are more worried about earthly security than we are confident about God's provision. We're more worried about uh, earthly security than we are confident about God's provision. That's what that means. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, I'm not worried about the things of this world. Paul wrote it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. He said, we fix our eyes on what we cannot see because what we see is temporary. Have the right perspective. What we see is temporary. Um, it's not going to last forever. I love the way Jim Elliott uh, made this statement. And it's a legendary statement. Jim Elliott said um, he headed out to uh, minister to the Aukin Indians, uh, a savage people, um, a uh, people who were removed from, from the rest of society out in the Amazon uh, of South America. And um, he headed that way. And his friends, when he headed that way, said, hey, John, you're, you're crazy, Jim, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're a young man. You just graduated from college. Don't go there and throw your life away. Uh, people have gone there before you, and they've been martyred. Uh, Jim, don't do this. And so his response was legendary. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen, friends, Jesus Christ is not against us enjoying things in this life. What he's against is when we put the things of this life above him. That's what he's against. A second hang-up. What's holding us back from this kind of full commitment? And this is especially true of what our family, uh, is that what other people think about us. And this is especially true of what our family thinks. What is your family going to think when you tell them, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ? What kind of response can you expect? And friends, you may have grown up in a Christian family, but your family tree may have been straddling on the fence, living lukewarm. There's a lot of times when Jesus is asking us to go in a different direction than the way that our family would have us to go. And friends and family are saying to us, you're crazy. 
Why would you want to throw your life away like that? And so in that moment, what are we going to do? Are we going to go with the winds of political, what people want for us to do? Or are we going to say to our family, I love you, but I'll not straddle that fence? Jesus is looking for people who are willing to say, it doesn't matter what people think, I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. And the third hang-up, third and final, is the hang-up of other love. Other love. You see, Jesus Christ demands total loyalty from us, total allegiance from us. It means you can't have a divided loyalty. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You can't pursue the one thing over here that's completely at odds with this over here. He says no one can serve two masters. And as much as you love your spouse, as much as you love your kids, as much as you love your job and your career, those things cannot be on a level playing field with our love for the Lord Jesus. They cannot be competing with the Lord Jesus. They have to be with the Lord as our top priority and the rest following suit. To be willing to cut off every other love that you've ever had and to do it without any questions asked. Friend, when you became a Christian, do you realize that the Bible says that you became Jesus' bride? Did you know that? And that when Jesus returns, Jesus doesn't want for us to stay in contact. He doesn't want to see us in contact with our other loves, pursuing those other loves, but rather pursuing him. Whether it's our career, our ambition, or a football team, Jesus wants all the old lovers gone. That's a fence, friends, that we cannot straddle if we are serious about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's a nice car, or nice things, or a cushy retirement, friends, or a trip to Disney, whatever it is, the Lord Jesus says that's off the table, then friends, that needs to be off the table because we put him and his priority for our lives in front of all of those other things. There are to be no rivals. So what are the three biggest uh, hang-ups holding us back from being all in with Jesus, from not straddling the fence? Number one is the hang-up of creature comforts. All of my creature comforts are at the disposal of God uh, and I yield to him whatever he asks of me. Number two, the hang-up of what people think. To say, I don't care what people think. I'm going to live the way Jesus wants me to live, despite how people are perceive that. And number three, the issue of other loves. Wanting to hold on to the world with one hand and to hold on to God with the other hand. That's a hang-up, friends, that we've got to let go of and say, hey, I've none but Jesus. I've jettisoned all other loves in my life. Folks, if you're straddling one of those three fences, God, you say, what does God want for me? This is what God wants for you. He wants for you to stop doing that. He wants for you to be fully committed, all in committed, and that's a decision that you have to make. That's a decision that you have to make. Jesus ain't going to make that decision for you. He gives you that option. And you have to make that decision with your family, you have to make that decision with your goals in your life. You have to make that decision with the stuff that you want to acquire. Is he going to be your security? Is he going to be the number one priority in your life? That's a decision that's yours to make. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to just pause before your teaching, to pause before your words of truth. Lord, we ask that... Uh, the things that you have set before us in our minds through your Holy Spirit. God, that we would be at a place where we are ready to surrender, where we are ready to say, 
yes, Lord, I see that you're calling me toward a deeper, more committed walk with you. Lord, we live in a culture and a time that desperately needs people who represent the truth to stand up and speak that truth and to live that truth. Many times, Lord, the world doesn't even want to hear our words. They want to see our actions. And so, Lord, this morning, to the things that we have heard, may the testimony of our life be all the more convincing to a watching world. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts in this time of quiet and communion. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.